I extend greetings to each of you in the name of Jesus. He's the reason that we're here. And we just ask Him to work in our hearts and our lives so that we can make an impact in the world around us. The first time you hear a preacher preach probably sets your impression of him henceforth. Um, be that as it may, I have something to share this morning that I believe the Lord would have us to learn from. How many of you know what the book of Nahum is written about? It's in our Bible, isn't it? We say we believe it's the Word of God. Anybody know? Was? It's written to the people, or about the people of Nineveh. The Assyrian people, specifically the city of Nineveh. I wouldn't have known that off the top of my head without studying and, and, and referencing it. And I don't know why the Lord led me here to this book. But I was challenged as well the last number of weeks. I've been listening to a, a series about Anabaptist heritage and church history and the tremendous divide that is in Christendom over the idea of the Bible being God's Word or the Bible containing God's Word. Do we believe there's a difference in those two statements? Because if we believe that this is God's Word, that settles it, right? If it contains God's Word, it's open to interpretation on which part is God's Word and which part is not. And that becomes a slippery slope down. We don't know a whole lot of, of the history of or the, the situation of Nineveh just by reading in the book of, of Nahum, but there's some other... Well, it's referenced a few other places, and we'll, we'll read a few verses of that later. But if you remember when, when Jonah got there, it said it was a, a, an exceeding large city of three days' journey. And in, in studying out that a little bit, the, the consensus that I found is that Nineveh was actually more like a group of, of cities or a metropolitan area with four different mounds that had been excavated, that it was about... 18 miles long and 12 to 14 miles wide. So kind of in a parallelogram, these cities spaced out. That was about 60 miles around this area. After its destruction, it was not known where it even was until about the mid-1800s. Someone finally decided to go over here and do some digging and, and found these, these cities. Uh, 
that they believe is, is Nineveh. In the historical timeline, Jonah had prophesied to this city. He had gone there around 782 to 753 B.C. So in that neighborhood, we're not exactly sure. At this point in time, Assyria was not a real strong military power. Um, they were maybe up and coming, but, but they hadn't, hadn't really become that aggressive. This book was written somewhere around 100 years after that, 100 to 150 years. Uh, it references, we'll see, a city that had been destroyed by the Assyrians as an example to them of what would happen to them, which had happened around 663. And then we understand that Nineveh was conquered in 612. So it was sometime between 663 and 612, say 100, 150 years after Jonah. But in that interim, after their repentance, we don't know how long that lasted, but they became a great military power. And God used them to bring judgment on Israel and later Judah uh, and carried away many captives. The Assyrians are mentioned in over a hundred verses in the, in the Old Testament, uh, a very prominent people referenced by God many times. The book of Nahum records basically the prophecy of the destruction of that city. And if you want to turn to, to that book, Nahum, uh, if you're not there already, the first part of chapter 1 is basically a psalm that sets the stage. Uh, it it describes the Lord, praises the Lord, uh, and kind of sets, sets God forth for who He is. Uh, the second half of that chapter speaks of judgment on Nineveh and also the deliverance and the, and the blessing that it would be to Judah. And in chapters 2 and 3 basically elaborate on the nature and scope of the decimation that would follow. I'm going to go ahead and read Nahum chapter 1. I'll be reading from the New King James. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Akashite. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has His way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. Go pause there. Notice the imagery, the, the word pictures. This book is full of word pictures, um, and later there are a number more. But as, as men, we have a hard time knowing how to describe God. <laughs> but... Uh, picture here. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. 
Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before His indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of His anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who trust in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue His enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a commandment concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Excuse me, I got my my paper there mixed up. Out of the house of the gods will I cut off the carved image and molded image. I will dig your grave for you are vile. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. As you contemplate preaching, Some say we just need to preach the grace of God. And John alluded to the grace of God and what it does. And the grace of God is a very a very great, a very wonderful reality. In this book, we see God's grace. But we also see His justice and judgment alongside His mercy. I'd say the the first part here speaks specifically of, of God being God and the right that He has as God to do what He needs and wants and thinks is right. Verse 3, The Lord is slow to anger. It had been 150 years since they repented here. He had been merciful a long time. But he also judges rightly. He says he will not at all acquit the wicked. They will not be declared innocent. I'd like to go to the book of Jonah and read there what happened. Um, And what, thinking of the backdrop here of God pronouncing judgment upon this people, but set a backdrop of His mercy in relation to that. Because God does not just a God of judgment. He's also a God of mercy and grace. Jonah, I'm going to read, uh, starting chapter 1, just a verse here, 
the word came to, to Jonah. It said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And then down to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, and he turned from his from the and they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and did not do it. He did not do it. Or he did not, yes, and he did not do it. And then chapter four. Jonah is grumbling about the lack of shade. It says, But the Lord said, You had pity on the plant for which you had not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right and their left and much livestock? To me that sets a picture of God's, God's love for this people, for a people, any people. And he warned them they had a chance and they responded and they repented. God was merciful. Going back to chapter 1. And thinking of, of God's judgment. In verse 6, the question, some questions there, basically rhetorical questions. Who can stand before God? Who, can, who of us can claim a status or the ability, something that I have done that will justify myself before Almighty God? And the answer is none of us. No one. Even, even if we would try to walk according to the law of the Old Testament, it's futile in attempting to stand before a holy and righteous God. No one, no one can stand. But verse 7, 
changes the tone a little. It says, but remember, the Lord is good. He's not just out in indignation to just destroy everyone. He is good. And a stronghold in the day of trouble. And He knows those who trust in Him. When trouble arises, where do you flee? The, the idea here of, of trust, many times when the word trust is used, it's also used with the verb put, your, to put your trust in. It takes action. It takes a heart that, that actually is moved to reach out. The Lord knows those who trust in Him. And that's a comforting fact. Because while God, the Creator, the Ruler of heaven and earth, no one can stand before Him, He knows those who trust. And He will be our stronghold. Verse 9 again asks some more questions. Is there, is there anything that we can, can do that will thwart the Lord's way, overrule His decision? And the answer is no. As I read and reread this book, the pronouns are kind of hard to follow sometimes and figure out exactly who it's talking about. This book... Well, back up. Jonah actually went as a prophet and preached in Nineveh. This book was written of a prophet's vision, burden, his, the word that he had, but I don't believe it was actually taken and spoken by him to the people. It was more written to the people of Judah so that they would understand what would happen and maybe be able to look back on it and and understand that God had prophesied God's word was carried out. And it was also a pronouncement of, of deliverance from the captivity and the bondage that the Syrians were putting on them. Uh, but we see here in verse 13, it says, For I will now break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. It seems to be speaking to the people of, of Judah. And then verse 15 says, Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. And that's, that's here what... This was, this was words of peace as, as their oppressors would be judged by God. And as I looked at this, keep your appointed feasts. What were the feasts of Judah for? What did God institute the feast for? That's what, that's what I believe. That the feasts were, were pointed to help them think back and remember the mighty acts of, of the deliverance from, from Egypt and, and other things He wanted them to keep in mind, to put, keep close 
remember. And here, they're told to keep their feasts, perform their vows, and I think it would give them encouragement as they remembered and as they declared their trust and their their, uh, allegiance to God. Moving on to chapter 2. Chapters 2 and 3 have a lot of the same message, just reiterated in little different imagery. Uh, I'll go ahead and read chapter 2 at this, this time. He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the street. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their walk. They make haste to her walls, and the defense is prepared. The gates of the river are opened, and the palace is dissolved. It is decreed, she shall be led away captive, she shall be brought up, and her maidservants shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating their breasts. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Take spoil of silver. Take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasures, of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The hearts melt and the knees shake. Much pain is on every side, and their faces are drained of color. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion walked and the lioness and lion's cub, and no one made them afraid? The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. This this section is... I understand written in a poetic form in Hebrew. We don't quite get the the effect. But uh, especially there, the first ten verses perhaps. And it's interesting, those that have studied, the archaeologists and whatnot, and I don't know, maybe other historians of the the time frame, say that in reference to verse 6, that actually, I guess the rivers were a very important part of those cities and maybe even perhaps flowed through. Um, but from what they believe happened, there was actually, whether man-made or, or flood, I, I read some different, different accounts, but the river actually flooded to the point that it broke down part of the city wall and enabled the invaders, which I believe were the Medes and the Babylonians there, to come in. And without that, the city was almost impenetrable. But why does it say here, the gates of the rivers are opened? 
the palace shall be dissolved. There's a reason that these words are here. And some of them literal, some figurative, but many believe that that actually happened, that the God allowed water to be used for their downfall. Nineveh was a very prosperous, a very wealthy city in part here due to their plundering and spoiling of those around them. But as it's, as it's told here, the, the ones that would come up against take spoil, wealth of every desirable price. Nothing here, nothing you would want wouldn't be here. But verse 10, she is empty and desolate. When they were done, that city was ruined. Ruined. And there's a picture, uh, the word picture here, the uh, reference verses 11 and 12, speaks of the city as a lion that went out and conquered and brought back prey for the cubs and the lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. A lion was, was, a, form, was a picture of, of strength. But here, the picture is, is excess, I believe, killed, <laughs> Mount, uh, heaping, heaping to themselves treasure at the expense of other people's. And the announcement here from God is, I'm against you because of, of this and, and many other things perhaps. But God says, I am against you. I will cut off your prey from the earth. Moving on to chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear, There's a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. And I think that is referring to the way the Assyrians plundered and killed. They were a bloody, bloodthirsty people, violent. And I knew that, I had heard that before I even looked at this. The Assyrians were known for their cruelty, for their, they're just heartless Heartlessness, and and here the picture is is of that. Countless corpses, they stumble over the corpses, just atrocious. What men, apart from God, pursuing their own aims. Verse 4, because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries, and families through her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. Reiterates there the the last verse of chapter 2. And I would say this, it's not just says, it doesn't just say, says the Lord or God. This is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sabaoth, I believe is one term maybe, but the God of the armies, as some Versions render it. And when God declares that, there is nothing that can stand in the way. Verse 5, continue. I will lift your skirts over your face 
I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile and make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for her? Are you no better better than no Ammon that was situated by the river? And here's that city that was I referenced earlier. Uh, no, it says in King James, no Ammon in New King James and Thebes, I think, in some of the other versions. Are you no better than, than this city that was situated by the river, that had waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea? Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. Put and Lubim were your helpers, yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and her great men were bound in chains. The Assyrians did that. And he's saying, you did that. That was a powerful city. You think you're stronger than they are? You also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. Here's a word picture. All your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. The mighty men. Someone comes up to a tree with ripe fruit, just tap it. If, it's, if they're really ripe, it takes very little. Surely your people in the midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. Draw water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. Here it's... Prepare. Get ready. It's coming. Verse 15. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. Make yourself many like the locusts. Make yourself many like the swarming locusts. You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. Your commanders are like swarming locusts and your generals like great grasshoppers which camp in the hedges on a cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away and the place where they are is not known. So they're strong men. We're going we're gonna to f- not be there to help them. Verse 18, spoken to the king of Assyria. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains and no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wicked passed continually? God's message of pronouncement is sure. His word will come to pass. Injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. And the nations around you that you have, that you have plundered and, and distressed, they're going to rejoice. Because it says, For upon whom has not 
your wicked past con- wickedness passed continually. We're told not to rejoice over the, the fall of our enemies or their, their downfall. But God says that's going to happen to you because you had a reputation and people are going to be glad to see your fall. And the message from this is that God will judge the wicked. And it causes me to both be encouraged and also to ponder. And I hope it can cause you to be encouraged and also ponder your path. A few, a few points going back over and thinking about, about this. God is merciful. God gave these people opportunity to repent, and they did. He was long-suffering. As chapter 1 referred to, He cares for and offers protection to those that trust. And Judah was looking to God. You know, their judgment came because of their wickedness, but they turned to Him. Many did, turned turned their hearts to God again. And He he, uh, reiterates His his goodness and His care. So God cares and offers protection for those who trust in Him. And also God will judge the wicked. That's sure. And... Something else that's sure is that no one can stand before the Lord of hosts apart from the blood of Christ. That's not specifically mentioned here, but we know from the rest of Scripture that it is through the blood of Christ that we have a way to stand justified before the Lord of hosts. And also, we don't have prophecies Prophets today prophesying of the ruin of nations that I know of. But we know that God will judge all nations. The nations of our day. In whom do we put our trust? We live in a land, a blessed and privileged land. But a land that from God's perspective, I'm sure is wicked, and from ours as well. So let our, our hearts be stayed on God, on our Savior, and let us call men to repent. While there is, while there is time, because that's what God would have, He would have all men to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. So may these these thoughts encourage and again cause us to ponder our path as we as we walk before God that we may walk uprightly and and his grace may be real in our lives. Seventh song.